You ready? You have your Bibles? You're going to need them. (laughs) We're in Isaiah chapter 43, a magnificent oracle about the restoration of the nation of Israel. We find this oracle in what we've come to know as Second Isaiah. And just in case you're not completely up to speed on your Isaianic scholarship this morning, what that means is the second half of Isaiah. Whereas the first half of this magnificent book, chapters 1 through 39, focuses on what the prophet calls the former things. The second half of the book, chapters 40 through 66, focuses on what the prophet calls the latter things. The former things are what Israel is in all of her sin, in all of her unmitigated rebellion, in all of her filth and self-centeredness. The second half of the book is Israel as she will be in her restoration, in her recreation, in what Yahweh sees through the eyes of a loving parent and a recreating God can happen to this self-same nation. Now, the introduction to the second half of the book starts with chapter 40. This is the hinge that turns us from Israel as she was to Israel as she will be. And in chapter 40 and beyond, we find the heart-wrenching words, comfort, oh comfort my people Israel. We read about the miraculous news that God will send his own servant who will teach Israel, who was supposed to be God's servant, how to serve. We read here about the new thing that God intends to do with his people and the new thing that will transform not only the nation of Israel, but the entire earth. Here we find the introduction to the latter things, and here we find our oracle. So, what does our oracle have to say? But now, but now, in the latter things, thus says Yahweh, your creator, O Jacob, and your designer, O Israel, do not fear, because I have redeemed you. I have called you by my name, and you are mine. From what? Is Israel about to be redeemed? Well, as you all know from your OT520 classes, this is that stage in Israel's history where she looks back on the most devastating judgment she has ever experienced. This is that moment when she looks back on the conquest of the nation by the Neo-Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar the Great. After years of warnings by means of his servant, the prophets, Sermon after sermon, oracle after oracle, defeat after defeat, correction, discipline, myriads of second chances, and re-education, and even after the devastation of the northern kingdom, which is only 35 miles north of Jerusalem. At last, God sends his servant, Nebuchadnezzar, what a devastating statement, to plunder the cities of Judah to raise his capital city, Jerusalem, to rob his temple, to murder his children. And those that survive will be driven off as captives, tied one to another with only the clothes on their back, driven before the merciless soldiers of Nebuchadnezzar's army, dragged off 1,200 miles across desert and highway to a land they've never seen. This is the exile. These people are stripped of their homeland. They're stripped of their identity. They're stripped of their ability to practice their religion. 
They are a broken people, a broken covenant, a broken dream. Yes, they lost their possessions and their wealth, but more than that, they lost their families. They lost their friends. They lost who they were, their status in society, their hope for the future. The only thing that we can even come close to comparing the exile of Judah with is the modern-day Holocaust. That's the closest we can come in our modern memory, where the Jews of Nazi Germany and Eastern Europe were grabbed in the middle of the night and thrown on boxcars with nothing but the clothes on their backs, separated from their children. You and I have heard the stories. We've seen the pictures. We've seen the movies where people will spend all of their lives after this devastating event just trying to find one relative. This is the story of Judah's exile. So we ask the question, why would Judah be so judged? And the answer is in the introduction to our oracle, chapter 42, verses 24 and 25. Who gave Jacob up for the spoil and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not Yahweh against whom we have sinned? And whose ways we were not willing to walk and whose laws we would not obey? so that he poured out on Israel the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle, and it set Israel aflame all around. Yet Israel did not recognize it. It burned him, and he paid no attention. It is Yahweh who has judged his people. Yahweh had promised on Mount Sinai and reiterated in Deuteronomy, in case they didn't get it the first time, that this land that they were to be given, this land was their gift that he, as their suzerain lord, would defend them from foreign oppression. He would keep them safe. He would dwell in their midst, housed in the temple, and be their god. When they came up from Egypt, they were given houses that they did not build, vineyards that they did not plant, olive groves that they did not nurture. From the perspective of a nomadic people whose only living memory was slavery, they were given paradise. They were given paradise. But he also promised them that these gifts were dependent upon them maintaining their covenant relationship with Yahweh. The conditions were not numerous, but they were unnegotiable. Either keep covenant or expect to lose these great gifts. Hence, after generations of prophetic protest, after years and years of warning, at last the axe fell. Israel was guilty. As the prophet catalogs throughout his text, they had chosen popularity over integrity. They had chosen religiosity over piety, self-indulgence over self-sacrifice, the honor of men over the honor of God. As Isaiah's very first oracle describes, where will you be stricken again? How can you add to your apostasy? In other words, I have disciplined you in every possible fashion I can imagine, and still you rebel. What is left to do? And what was left to do? Enact the covenant curse. And so at last, after all of these years, Yahweh judged his people because his people were guilty. But the amazing thing about the character of the God that we serve is that judgment is never the entirety of his plan. Hallelujah. 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 
Rather, after bringing this judgment on his people, a judgment they justly deserved, he speaks through this prophet the message of restoration. He tells them that he is going to recreate them. And what is that restoration going to look like? It's going to be the return from the exile. The return from the exile. So let's take a look at this oracle. Verse 1. But now, thus says Yahweh your creator, O Jacob, and your designer, O Israel, do not fear because I've redeemed you. I have called you by my name and you are mine. Even in the midst of their wretchedness, Yahweh is not afraid to claim his people as his own, nor is he afraid to make the promise, I will redeem you. Now you all know that the word redeem means to buy back. And many of you know that it's most often used in the context of a patriarch of a clan taking care of his patriarchal responsibility to pay whatever price is required to win back a marginalized member of his family, a marginalized member who's been lost to poverty or to slavery or to their own stupidity in the circumstances of life. We've got the example of Abraham going out after Lot when the kings of the east had conquered him. He redeems Lot from being a POW because it's his patriarchal responsibility. We have the story of Ruth and Boaz. We love this story. It's romance, it's handsome, it's pretty, it's great. What is Boaz doing? He's acting as a kinsman redeemer. He is buying back Ruth and Naomi from the edge of poverty, lest they be lost to the community. And then we have the heart-wrenching story of Hosea and Gomer, the man of God who has to go bid on his wife in the public square because her career in prostitution hasn't worked out too well, and she's had to sell herself into slavery. Hosea goes, the prophet of God, and bids on his wife in the public square. This is redemption, and this is what Yahweh promises his people. He will pay to ransom the rebellious child. He will buy back his adulterous wife. He will play the role of the faithful patriarch to the disrespectful, embarrassing excuse for a people that Israel has become. And he will bring them home. 1,200 long miles of highway and desert, he will bring them home. And although the road will be difficult and will be frightening, verse 2, when you cross through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And when you go into the midst of the fire, I won't let you be burned. And the flame will not kindle upon you. Yeah, they were guilty. But he would buy a reprieve on their behalf. He would be with them. Now, this is spoken to a people group whose entire theology was built on the idea of God present among them. Remember the temple. The reason the temple is in the capital city is it's an expression that God dwells with his people. What happens when Nebuchadnezzar breaks through the walls and tears down the temple? Ezekiel sees in a vision the presence of God departing. God abandons his people. He leaves them. And as far as these people know, he's never coming back. And he says to them, I will be with you. Verse 3, because I, Yahweh, am your God. The Holy One of Israel is your deliverer. I have given Egypt 
as your ransom, Cush and Seba, instead of you. Because you are precious in my eyes, you are honored, and I love you. And I will give people in your place, I will give peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, I am with you. Yeah, it's not going to be an easy road home, but you're not going to walk it alone. And now we come to the climax of this oracle. Verse 5b. From the east I will bring your offspring. From the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give them up. And I will say to the south, don't you hold them back. Bring forth my sons from a distance and my daughters from the edge of the earth, all the ones who are called by my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have fashioned, even whom I have made. This is spoken to a nation who in 722 BC watched the 10 northern tribes dragged off to the far reaches of the Fertile Crescent and never heard from again. This is said to a people group who in 586 watched themselves dragged off to Babylon. The ones who survived ran to Egypt and set up little enclaves of Jewish settlements trying to live out their lives in a foreign land. But Yahweh says, I will bring you back. I will bring you home. As we go through the rest of the oracle, we find out that Israel, who was blind as a result of this amazing restoration, will be given sight. And once she is given sight, she will stand as a witness to the nations. Now, there's an ironic reversal. How would you like a blind witness standing up for you in court? <laughs> but Yahweh is brave, very brave. <laughs> and in this restoration, he says that first I'm going to give my people sight so they'll see who it is they've been serving all these years. But then they're going to stand up in the court of the nations and they're going to declare to the world, this is our God. It is he who has delivered it and verse, delivered us. And verse 12, it is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, there was no strange God among you. It is Yahweh who's brought about this deliverance. Nobody else. And this is the point of this restoration. So God's people can stand in the nations and say, it is Yahweh Elohim who has done this for me. Like the blind man in the New Testament I don't know who he is, but I know that once I was blind, and now I see Israel in the court of the nations. And then we come to the conclusion. Do not remember the former things, or ponder the things of the past. At this moment, I am doing a new thing. Now it will spring forth. Will you not recognize it? Indeed, even I will place a highway in the wilderness. In other words, I'm going to set up a road to make it easy for you to come home. Rivers in the desert. The beasts of the field will glorify me. Jackals and ostriches, who are not known for their high level of intelligence. Even they, even they will glorify me. For I have put water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, in order to give my drink to my chosen people, this people whom I have designed for myself, let them recount my praise. So how should Israel interpret this amazing news? They're coming home. They're coming home because God is doing a new thing so that his people might be able to recount, proclaim, make known all of the uses of Safar and the PL, his praise. In other words, ladies and gentlemen, tell the story and tell it well. This is the whole point of Israel being delivered 
from the exile. What will be the nature then of this new thing that Yahweh is doing for his people? Now this is where the prophet starts blowing the doors off the whole thing. What about this new thing? Now certainly it is the miraculous restoration of the Judeans from Babylon. No question about it. We know that between the Assyrians and the Babylonians, tens of thousands of people were dragged off into exile. Let me say that again. Tens of thousands of people were dragged off into the exile. We know that. We have a text that even tells us that the Philistines were settled across the canal from the Judeans in Babylon. There's another ironic reversal for you. They can never get away from each other. <laughs> but we only have one story of a people group coming home, just one, and it's our guys. Now stop and think for a minute, 70 years, 70 years in another land, 70 years of rebuilding your family, maybe marrying someone new because your wife and children were slaughtered, and starting again, building a new business, a new home, assimilating into the culture, 70 years. Maybe you are the second or third generation of the people who came from Judah. Why would you want to go home? Where is home anyway? The fact that these people came back at all is a miracle. Then the fact that those who did come back managed to rebuild their community and rebuild the temple and rebuild a society, this is miraculous as well. Their temple, their priesthood, these things were restored. This is amazing stuff. This is not a little story. This is a big story. But reality is, as John Bright estimated years ago, that where is the pre-exilic population of Jerusalem, just Jerusalem, not the nation, just the city, was about 200,000, give or take a couple dozen. The restored community in its entirety, 20,000. A tenth of the people who were taken from the capital city came home. Most of the Babylonian Jews did not come back. Most of them did not return. And the ones who did return, returned as citizens of another nation. Judah was a Persian province, nothing more, always under the subjecting hand of another power. The Abrahamic boundaries, the glory of the Davidic monarchy, the Solomonic temple, distant memories. And the returnees were not unaware of the embarrassment and the disappointment of this. We read about them weeping when the new temple is dedicated. No, to the Jew, Although the restoration began in 538 BC with Cyrus' decree, it had not yet been completed. This is why when we get to Ezekiel, we continue to hear about the story of the restoration. Let me read to you just a small part from Ezekiel 37, verses 21 through 24. This is what the restoration was supposed to look like. Say to them, thus says Yahweh your God, Behold, I will take the sons of Israel from among the nations where they have gone, and I will gather them from every side, and I will bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountain of Israel, and one king will be king over all of them, and they will no longer be two nations, and they will no longer be divided into two kingdoms, and they will no longer defile themselves with their idols and their detestable things or with their transgressions. 
but I will deliver them from all their backsliding in which they have sinned. And I will cleanse them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. And my servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd. And they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes, and they will observe them. Ezekiel in the exile is looking for that kind of restoration. And then Nehemiah. Remember, Nehemiah is the last guy to come back. The main core of the Judeans was already home. He is praying in Nehemiah chapter 1 about the regathering, about the restoration. He's still praying for the restoration. He's still praying for the regathering. And what does he say? Remember the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are faithful, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you will return to me and keep my commandments and do them, even if your scattered ones are at the edge of heaven, from there I will gather them, and I will bring them to the place in which I chose to place my name. So even after most everyone had gone home who was going to go home, Nehemiah is still talking about the dream of the gathering of the scattered ones and the restoring of the nation. Not only that, folks, but every pre-exilic prophet we have, excuse me, every post-exilic prophet we have speaks of this same dream. They're still talking about the regathering and the restoring of the nation hundreds of years after Cyrus' decree. When we hit the intertestamental literature, Maccabees, Baruch, the Song of Solomon, Jubilees, they're all saying the same thing. What about the regathering? What about the restoration? Gather those together that are scattered from us. O oh Lord, deliver them that serve among the heathen. Look upon them that are despised and abhorred. Let the heathen know that you are our God. What does all this post-exilic and intertestamental literature tell us? It tells us that from the Jews' perspective, the restoration of the new thing, the restoration of the nation, the new thing that Isaiah was talking about, hasn't happened yet. That brings us to the New Testament. You have to wind up in the New Testament. No matter how much you love A to Beta Row, you gotta wind up in the New Testament. <laughs> so we wind up in the New Testament. And how often do you get to say this? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all introduce the ministry of Jesus with the same figure. You don't get to say that often. It's usually the synoptics, and then there's John. Right? There's this one. But all four of them introduce the ministry of Jesus the same way. They talk about John the Baptist. And they all introduce John the Baptist the same way. This is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way, or should I say, make ready the highway of the Lord, make his paths straight. Where is this quote from? Isaiah 40. That hinge between what Israel was and what she will be. The latter things versus the former things. Hallelujah. This is the transition chapter that moves us from the sinful Israel to the restored nation. And what is Isaiah talking about? Make ready the way of the Lord. 
make ready the way of the Lord to bring the exiles home, of course. Just as Nebuchadnezzar led them out as slaves and captives and dragged them off to Babylon, Yahweh, the high king of heaven, is going to lead them out of Babylon as a victorious army. Make ready the way of the Lord. Bring those exiles home. So what are the gospel writers telling us by quoting Isaiah's opening oracle on the restoration? They're telling us that the new thing that Isaiah was talking about, the true restoration of the nation of Israel, is about to begin. This is why it's so critical that Jesus be identified as the son of David. He will reunite north and south. This is why Jesus must be hailed king of the Jews by Nathaniel. This is why 12 disciples... Yeah, it's a spiffy biblical number that you can use in lots of different contexts, but this time it's a spiffy biblical number that reflects the 12 restored tribes, 12 new representatives of the restored Israel. And this is why in John 11, verses 47 through 52, when the high priests are trying to figure out what to do with this guy Jesus who's making so much trouble, They say to each other, if we let him go on like this, all people will believe and Rome will come and take away our nation and our place. An awful lot like Assyrian Babylon came and took away our place, huh? And Caiaphas, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, maybe the only time he ever experienced that, (laughs) says to them, you don't get it, guys. It is expedient for one For you, that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation should not perish. And then the biblical narrator goes on to interpret that. He prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. You see, the restoration of Israel, about which Isaiah preaches so compellingly, yeah, it applied to the Judeans coming back from Babylon. But it is Jesus who will accomplish the true restoration, the true regathering of this nation of Israel. God had a much bigger plan than getting 20,000 Judeans out of Babylon. And his plan this new thing that God had in mind was the miraculous idea that not merely the exiles of Judah would come home, but the exiles of Eden would come home as well. John 10, 16, John says, but I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall become one flock with one shepherd. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him might not perish. You and I sit here today in Estes Chapel as testimony of the fact that the lost daughters and sons that Jesus came to call home were not all Jews. Rather, Jesus came so that every tongue, every tribe, and every nation could hear the amazing message that although our sin had driven us into exile 
had driven us to the very edge of heaven, as Nehemiah would say, left us in a place where we were sure that God had forgotten us. Even though we were guilty and filthy and unworthy of his concern, our creator, the one who formed us, cries out to us, don't be afraid. I have redeemed you. I've paid the ransom. You can come home now. Each of us has a story. Each of us sitting here today. For some of us, the journey home was so frightening that it took us years before we could dare to take the step. For some of us, we were so profoundly aware of how deeply we had failed in our calling to be God's child that we had to hear the message over and over again before we could believe. But each of us heard the prophet's message. Each of us took his hand. Each of us came home. We're sitting here today. There might even be a few sitting among us now who are struggling with the thought that they've done something or thought something that has driven them beyond the reaches of this message. But Yahweh says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. 43.25. Yeah, you're guilty. Yeah, I'm guilty. But the good news is about sin that there's forgiveness. And the good news about our God is that he forgives. So if you are one of those people this hour, get it over with. Repent. Go on. It's good on the other side. (laughs) Isaiah says, Do not call to mind the former things or ponder the things of the past. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it will spring forth. Will you not see it? You and I are the new Israel. You and I have experienced this amazing grace. Like the Judeans, we were guilty and we deserved his wrath. Our actions had driven us. Our actions had driven us into exile. But we have felt his grace. We have believed the prophet. And he has brought us home. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. But just like the Judeans, you and I have been saved for a reason. We have experienced this amazing grace for a reason. Yeah, he was concerned about your individual redemption, no question about that. But as my friend Helen Music likes to say, it's not about us, folks. It's about him. Israel was restored so that they could serve as witnesses. The people who I have formed for myself, let them recount my praise. You were restored, I was restored, so that we could serve as witnesses. I once was blind, but now I see. There are still many sheep who are not of this fold. Thousands upon thousands of the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, metaphorically speaking, are still in Babylon. Even more, like the ten lost tribes, have been driven to the far reaches of memory and knowledge, and they haven't heard the message of the prophet. They're still in exile. They don't know that it's safe to come home. 
They don't know that Yahweh has paid the ransom. They don't know that he's provided for their redemption, that he has given another in their place. They don't know, as Yahweh says, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. The new thing is ongoing, folks. The story continues. The sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve must hear, because how can they believe unless they hear? As Isaiah said thousands of years ago to the biological sons of Abraham, so he says to us grafted in types today, you have seen the salvation of your God so that you might be witnesses of his glory. It is God who has picked up the broken pieces of my life. It is God who has made me something when I was nothing. It was God who gave me a vision and a hope. We must serve as his witnesses. So my concluding statement to you, my brothers and sisters, is this. Let me commission us today. Go tell them. Tell them that it's safe to come home.